FDI into Southeast Asia has doubled in the past decade, with Singapore being the, the main destination. And the growth in the near term for this is expected to continue because the, we're seeing all the region's consumers market growing size and in affluence. So I think there was some estimate, I think I saw some estimates, I believe from Bank of America, that FDI flows to Southeast Asia grew more than 100 billion. Singapore, I believe, in 2022, from like 100 billion in 2010. And we are seeing this increases in both in terms of just the money. Family offices that are coming here as well increase in investors that want to have a foot in Southeast Asia as well. So for tech, for Chinese tech, not everyone, but lots and lots of companies at different sizes are setting up a Singapore entity and are making Singapore their kind of window into the world. Hi folks, welcome back to On Call with Insignia, where you go on call for leaders innovating the future of Southeast Asia's internet and digital economy, or as we like to call it, Asia Innovation. I'm your host, Paolo Pina. And in this episode, it's actually quite a unique episode for us here in the show because it'll be the first time that we're actually having a journalist on the podcast to share their insights. I think it's going to be an interesting perspective to hear about, especially since they have that, I would say, like maybe bird's eye view or third person perspective when it comes to the ecosystem. So really interested to hear her thoughts on some of the trends and themes that uh, she has covered herself over the over recent months in Southeast Asia and Asia Pacific region. So we have none other than Fanny Potkin. So she's the Asia technology correspondent at Reuters. So Fanny, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just get right into it. I think since you, you're very much covering all these like big major headlines, which we'll touch on separately individually over the course of this conversation. But I just wanted to ask, In general, what excites you about Southeast Asia today and amidst all of these market headwinds, uncertainty, and being a journalist yourself, <laughs> you're you're seeing all these like headlines as well that may seem all doom and gloom, but what keeps you optimistic about the region, keeps you excited as somebody who tells the stories from the Arab region? Southeast Asia has always excited me. I think there's a dynamism here that can't be replicated or can't be found anywhere else. And the diversity of country is basically different cultures. Make it, make it for everything, but make it for tech in particular, a really interesting place. And while we've seen basically amazing tech scenes in Indonesia and obviously Singapore for, for years, I'm really excited to see about na nascent tech scenes emerging in some markets that haven't been strongholds for startups yet, such as the Philippines. I guess it's a weird time for the tech sector in Southeast Asia. After the absolute boom years that lasted until midway, halfway into COVID, the market has changed drastically. You're seeing a lot of big unicorns who are putting their uh, IPOs on hold, and you're seeing startups that are having a much harder time to fundraise. In a way, I think this is still exciting for the market in a different way, just because that means the startups that are still getting money are startups that have really clear visions. They have a need or very smart ideas to fill. And we're getting, I think, more creativity in basically what we're seeing. And that might also help stop startups that don't necessarily are not going to find their business from basically taking off. So I think it's a harder market where 
companies have to refine their visions to get money to basically to survive. But I think it will help a lot of companies in the long term just because they're going to have to be sharper, more creative, more ready. And honestly, as a journalist, that's exciting to see. I hear some of the same sentiment from VCs as well, where they're saying, obviously, the valuations have been cut. For us, it's great. But also in that they might also be getting different types of pitches or more interesting pitches. Definitely some doom and gloom and some hard times, not always fairly, that it has hit some really great companies. But I think it has made expectations more realistic, made valuations more realistic. And in the long term, I believe Southeast Asia will grow from this. And we're seeing will continue from unicorns. I think e-fisheries, which I believe is still at this point, Indonesia's most recent unicorn, is really great example of something working in a landscape that you never expect, oh, this is going to be a billion dollar business, but a really smart company that took its time and dominated the market really well. Yeah. And as they say, no pain, no gain, I guess uh, the ecosystem is going through its learning curve and really that will force, I think, a lot of companies to mature in a more sustainable way. We're seeing a lot of examples of that come out. Just for our listeners to get to know you a little bit more and what context you bring into this conversation, I also wanted to talk about a little bit of your background as well. You've been with Reuters for, I think, six years or so now. And prior to that, you were already doing a lot of journalism work as well. What led you to actually land in this particular beat of covering technology in Southeast Asia and Asia Yeah, for several years now? I've always been really interested into technology. So before joining Reuters, I was a freelance reporter. And even at the time, I spent a fair amount of time in Myanmar. And something that remains fascinating to me was the nascent startup and tech scene, really nascent tech scene in Myanmar, but really smart startups, really smart ideas. And again, lots of creativity and originality when you're dealing with losing electricity for six hours a day quite often. So Myanmar, unfortunately, for different reasons due to the political situations, a lot of those startups have taken a hit. That's hard to overcome in a different way than COVID. So I was always interested in tech. And then I was in London for Reuters and I moved to Indonesia with Reuters to cover companies in general, every companies across Indonesia. And very quickly, that 70% of that became tech just because Indonesian tech companies were so exciting. And Indonesia is such an exciting market and was so big where digital like consumers in Indonesia and in other Southeast Asian countries like Myanmar, they consume differently. They are much more, they will leapfrog to innovation in a way that you just don't see in Europe or in a lot of older developed markets like Japan. So that got really exciting. And basically, eventually my job became from covering Indonesian companies, covering Southeast Asian tech. And then now Asian tech, basically. so much more opportunity to dig into the links between the U.S. and Southeast Asia, or specifically very much a lot of my time on China and Southeast Asia. Yeah, so interesting from, from Myanmar to London and then to Indonesia, and then now that scope has grown. I had a quick follow-up, like what is the biggest like culture shock for you when you first started exploring the tech space in Indonesia in particular? It's a good question. Culture shock. I grew up in Southeast Asia, actually, mm. in Southeast Asia. Indonesia is quite different from mainland Southeast Asia, but it did mean that I probably had less culture shock to some people. I guess I didn't fully appreciate until I moved to Indonesia its diversity of languages and its, its logistical challenges. Because Indonesia, amazing startups, but honestly, they're all in Java. And many of them really serve Java. 
And the Indonesia is this big, massive market, and Java itself is the jewel of that. But there hasn't, for even a lot of Indonesian companies, there's still this challenge. It's still tremendously expensive to get their products, to get what they're selling outside of Java. And I think I had underrated that just how logistically com complicated, I believe Indonesia is, numbers differ between 12,000 islands to 17,000 islands. Just the logistical challenges of Indonesia really just blew my mind. And I'm actually very curious to see on how startups basically continue to innovate in that space. Yeah, we always say that Indonesia is a big market, but underneath that is really all this complexity. As you mentioned, we actually capture that big market. Then even within Java, there's already a lot of opportunity to be had. What are the common challenges, especially in a region like Southeast Asia, we always say different markets, different nuances and all of that. And it applies to founders, investors alike. And I think even to journalists when they're covering these types of stories, what's the most common challenge you face covering stories in the tech industry in this part of the world? So I have a bit of a weird job in that my job will be covering basically primary unicorns of some big companies. Then I'll be covering big U.S. and Chinese tech companies in the region are making moves, basically, whether it's Shein or Netflix or Meta. And then the other part of my job is covering cybersecurity. And then the last part will be internet regulation. So for me, what I do is I'll be breaking stories on all those beats. And in terms of the companies we'll cover, it might be streaming, it might be just different startups, or it might be semiconductors or AI. So there is a big learning curve to try to understand those different topics. And I come at it with the perspective that I know nothing and I must learn from the people that I meet. So I guess the biggest challenge is trying to develop sources across those sectors, trying to understand those sectors, and also trying, and most of this I'm doing nowadays from Singapore before Jakarta, trying to understand what my blind spots are. So for me, the best reporting, I think it's, let's say you're covering a gig economy company. You are not just talking to the company, you're talking to the investors. You're talking to maybe staff that this company has in different divisions. And you might also be talking to their drivers or to their delivery men or to e-commerce sellers or small food merchants that they're working with, if you want to understand them fully. And then obviously, I think the last challenge is in relation to that is it's some countries will be harder to get sources or to make sure that your information is accurate just because they are more closed off and there'll be less information. So it'll be harder to just try to verify your information. Yeah. Yeah. I think the variance is probably the challenging thing to navigate here. In in your earlier answer, you did actually outline the rest of our conversation with some of the beats that you've covered. So I just wanted to tackle them <laughs> in order. I think the first one that you mentioned about global companies. And their moves here in this part of the world. And I think, you know, of interest is a lot of these like companies like CMS, which cover Netflix, uh, and I think there are many other examples of these companies that have been moving their HQs, R&D, engineering to like companies, to countries like Singapore, Vietnam, Indonesia. From what you've covered so far within this beat, what do you think are the uh, drivers for these companies to actually take an active interest in setting up all this infrastructure in the region? And then... How do you think with this impact, the competitive landscape, especially for tech companies in Southeast Asia? Big question. I guess to start with, for a lot of those companies, for a lot of general companies, maybe more for Siemens or maybe more companies that have supply chain flows. And I sure will double to that leader. Southeast Asia has become growing markets or more appealing position, given that a lot of those companies had China operations 
or basically other operations, not just China, but operations that were stuck under lockdown. So for companies that have factories, we're definitely seeing the need to diversify their supply chain to increase their resilience and to diversify their supply chain. And FDI into Southeast Asia has doubled in the past decade with Singapore being the, the main destination. And the growth in the near term for this is expected to continue because the, we're seeing all the region's consumers market grow in size and in affluence and as businesses look with also this context of geopolitical fragmentation. So I think there was some estimate, I think I saw some estimates, I believe from Bank of America, that FDI flows to Southeast Asia grew more than 100 billion as Singapore, I think I believe in 2022 from like 100 billion in 2010. So Southeast Asia right now, something around like 11, 10, 11% of the world's FDI, according to some economists, not everybody agrees. So in terms of the competitive landscape and the capital flows in the region, it's definitely coming. And we are seeing this increases both in terms of system money, family offices that are coming here as well, increase in investors that definitely want to have a foot in Southeast Asia as well. And then in terms of global companies, Singapore, given the fact that Hong Kong is in a very different political context than before, and Tokyo is very Japan focused, not as English speaking as Singapore, generally in APAC, there's very few other places that you can go for your headquarters that are as convincing a proposition as Singapore. And we've definitely seen this in social media. And I think we're seeing this more and more. So for tech, for Chinese tech, not everyone, but lots and lots of companies at different sizes are setting up a Singapore entity and are making Singapore their kind of window into the world. For Southeast Asia, I think in terms of, I think earlier you mentioned engineering and R&D, that proposition is a bit more complex because Southeast Asia does lack the amount of engineers that basically are in R&D. It can't quite offer the same value proposition that China does or India does outside of Vietnam. But Vietnam is obviously still a small country compared to India or China. So I think some moves in there, it's going to make Southeast Asia more competitive. And I think we're going to see more and more of this coming to Singapore. More capital flows, but also more competition because it might, homegrown startups might be competing against now rivals who've done the same thing in China or in India and other markets. So more competition for the funds as well. I think that something that England has been saying a lot to like founders in general has been the competitive landscape, even as a Southeast Asian company, even before you think about going global or, or whatsoever, the stage is already global in itself because there are so many of these companies that have started to set up in Singapore and the rest of the region. And yeah, just that interest is raising the bar and raising expectations for, for the kinds of companies that are being built. And I think like across, obviously, uh, thanks for tackling that, that huge question. But I think within that supply chain representation, which we've seen even before the pandemic, like central to that has been, I would say, like the semiconductor industry. And it's something that you've covered in great length and depth <laughs> over the past few months. We'd love to, to cover that topic a little bit here on this call. But for starters, maybe you can run our listeners through I guess a summary just to bring everybody up to speed on what it's like now, especially with China reopening, but at the same time, a lot of different countries, especially US and Europe, looking to wean themselves off of China in terms of their semiconductor 
kind of supply chain? All right, tough question. Let's try. Okay, annual sales of semiconductors are insanely large. It's, I believe, more than half a trillion dollars in 2022. And it's half a trillion in, in the sales, but it's tens of trillions in annual economic activities. Semiconductors or in your data centers, in your laptops, in your mobile phones, in your cars, in your walking machines, light bulbs. It's basically an overall like production input, like, like globally, 12% of GDP. And I think basically the U.S. and with West, Western functional law, basically the U.S. has been pushing for sanctions on China on semiconductors for the last year and has formed a, what has been referred to in the media, Chip 4 alliance with Japan and Taiwan, which has been criticized by China's plot to exclude China from semiconductor supply chain. And generally there has been a massive amount of increased pressure on the Chinese semiconductor industry. And after DC, I believe it's in October, implemented new updates and new rules that further restrict the ability of mainland China to obtain very advanced chips, which hurts them not just for all of those things, but also for things like AI as well. And then in August, Joe Biden signed the Chips Act, Chips and Science Act, which is intended to boost American high-tech manufacturing kit capabilities, but will also give money to foreign semiconductor firms who are seeking, both foreign and U.S., who are seeking to do more business with the U.S. or in the U.S. So I guess a very interesting development that's going on now, right now, is that we are seeing, according to data last week, we're seeing the trade in semiconductors between China and South Korea decline mm -hmm. and, and decline significantly. I believe that according to South Korea's Ministry of Trade, Industry, and Energy, last Thursday reported that ICT exports of semicon displays and smartphone between mainland and China failed more than 30%. General an analysts believe that before that, China accounted for 40% of China's South Korea's total chips export. So this reduced trade comes when, at the same time, that China is itself trying to improve its self-sufficiency in chips, both advanced chips, but also the kind of basic chips that are, are used in cars and home appliances. We're seeing movements in terms of the way the countries that have traditionally dominated semiconductors have been linked together. And it's very interesting how that's going to play out in terms of how is Southeast Asia benefiting. So Southeast Asia has two chips hotspots. One of them is Singapore, which is a hub basically for years under under help of the government and where you have some massive players basically that have built factories here, that have factories here, or that are building their own factories here. And then you have the other top player here is Malaysia, which has a history of skilled, basically of skilled labor in semiconductor and which has both very strong homegrown players, but also strong foreign players. You had Intel, I think in 2021. And investing 7 billion in a semiconductor packaging plant in Penang. Infineon is constructing a fab plant in Kulim. So basically you're seeing Southeast Asia taking advantage. And then you have the younger players trying to fight for some of that business. As a hub for Samsung, this is where basically Vietnam can make more of a value-added proposition, but it doesn't have the expertise or the specific trade neighbor that Malaysia can offer or, you know, that Singapore, but it is cheap. 
So Vietnam has been pitching. Thailand has been pitching in this sector as well. Thailand does have in the car manufacturing space as well. Indonesia a bit, but less aggressively in the last month, more pre-COVID in my opinion. You're seeing those companies basically look at all those different Southeast Asian options and look at whether or not Southeast Asia can fit their needs. Yeah. So I think like that just continues the thread of our conversation from the previous question of, I guess, a lot of these like global players. And just to clarify, it's like the industries in Southeast Asia have still largely been driven by this movement of global players into these countries. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this whole diversification theme like extend into that industry moving forward, especially with this, I think like chip nationalism and all these different countries trying to set up their own infrastructure or all these multinational corporations trying to set up infrastructure in different countries to really take advantage of different market opportunities and not be locked into certain regions. A lot of headlines have talked about the semiconductor downturn over the pandemic with the supply chain constraints. You see, I guess this whole like chip nationalism kind of theme taking this taking us out of this downturn or are there other drivers that you see moving the industry forward in the next few years? For China, chip nationalism is now a priority. It feels that it has no choice but to basically increase. It already was making moves towards self-reliance, but now it has to actually just move at an insane speed. Chinese chips, basic chips can probably will improve very quickly for like chips like basically what NVIDIA offers, that's going to take much longer. But chip nationalism is definitely going on. In terms of for other countries, it's a harder case. It's more, let's say, in Malaysia, I had a Malaysian semiconductor sector and expert basically put it this way to me, someone who is an exec from one of the companies who said, we feel that we're being forced to choose between the US and China. We can't just be Malaysian chips by ourselves. And he was saying right now, this, their company is doing their best to avoid picking a side. And Southeast Asia just geographically is going to want to avoid picking a side. So going back to the downturn, the downturn is basically a mix of a confluence of factors. We have increasing inflation. We have geopolitical unrest, not just the U.S.-China tension, but also Ukraine is having an effect on this, for according to some analysts. And then we have generally and very importantly, like lingering effects of the pandemic. And all those different factors have increased macroeconomic certainty and decreased consumer spending. So even regardless of the U.S.-China tensions, household spending on PCs, tablets, it's decreased, right? Because you don't know how inflation is going to look. We all like seeing in different countries costs rising. So as a result, the demand for the semiconductors that powered those chips have declined as well. So that's created headwinds for the semiconductor industry that will impact basically chip nationalism as well. So generally weaker industry growth, but simultaneously, and which makes this kind of a very hard question to assess completely mm-hmm. in a very definitive way to cars, basically cars make arms, some chips or cars or a hotspots. There is a burst of demand from car makers who are now ramping up out after running out of chips or having death of chips over the last two years. So it's chip content. I had some, actually, I have some industry numbers. Okay. Chip content in cars has grown over 10 times across the automotive industry because car makers keep adding services to cars. In the past, like a car needed maybe 300 USD worth of chip content. 
Now it's going to need on average 3,000 USDs wow. worth of chip. Ten times more. Yeah. Yeah, ten times more. And for a luxurious car, like a BMW, we're talking 5,000 USD worth of chip content. And then it's even more for electric cars, the Tesla, due yeah. to battery management and to the higher so the chip space, depending on what kind of chips you, you provide, who your clients are, it's very different. So that's basically, I think it's going to be quite interesting in what it looks like. And you're seeing those different drivers, the kind of the inflation, the decreased consumer spending and the fluctuation in demand, but also automotive chips, basically. So a mixed market, Siemens uh, CEO was saying that for to me last week when they were announcing the factory, in a factory in Singapore, he was saying they expect, they're still seeing some issues with chips, but they expect it to basically not decrease, but normalize by like the second half of this year. That's quite interesting that like automotives in particular, there is that demand in spite of, I guess, consumer spending going down. But it is interesting to see that like the chip content, as you mentioned, has definitely increased and seems to be increasing the more, I guess, the more high tech these cars become. And so I guess that uh, at least in the upstream value chain sort of drives that demand. And I also wanted to get into how this might, I want to talk about the chip value chain in particular, and we're seeing a lot of you know, like NVIDIA, for example, a lot of headlines of how their company performance has been really going through the roof and all that, given all these higher demand for chips and all that. So how do you see like the value chain for chips from the chips themselves all the way to like the end products? sort of evolving moving forward and like where the where do you think are some of the opportunities for like smaller players like startups for example to really bring new value or innovate in this space have you have, like had any conversations along those lines this is a hard question because obviously semiconductor chips if you're a startup and you want to innovate in that space it takes a massive amount of money yeah. so it takes basically there is definitely an opportunity I think there is, and you're seeing some startups doing really well. The most interesting at the startup level, I think a lot of the most interesting stuff is coming from China because right. China is making such a push for self-reliance. Right. But now that it's quite different, for, let's say if you take the China and then this impacts Southeast Asia, because I think you're seeing a lot of those startups who are doing the international entities here and then in China. But like startups in, in China, let's say if you're in the semiconductor startups and you need space, you need, you need testing grounds, you, if you're going towards manufacturing, you're going to need factories. So you're seeing deals that compared to the past are happening in renminbi and are involving the government, the Chinese government for China. So that in terms of APAC semiconductor, that's a big shift and something that wasn't necessarily the case even a couple of years ago where like, you were a semiconductor startup. You are a VC looking to invest with a semiconductor startup. You are nicely, you know, doing around with the Chinese government or signing, having to deal with the Chinese government and you are nicely doing it in, in renminbi. Now, all of those things are for almost all of the cases I've heard in China, the reality. Southeast Asia, I think the Singapore is pushing really hard to help in different ways the chip sector and to push new talent. I think A-Star is doing a lot of work to basically grow and make working in chips much more appealing for the next generation. Malaysia is also doing some work in that sector. I'm not seeing as much, and this is my only ignorance. If you're on this call, please call me. Some actor startups in Southeast Asia that are, let's see, Southeast Asian operations only. I believe there is some, 
but it tends to be more kind of big local champions or big companies that are working with the government to grow the talent sphere on more that. established things. Something that is definitely happening is so Singapore is seeing, I think. Chinese semiconductor talent, some of them are going back to China or creating their own startups, but others for some fields feel, according to especially younger researchers, they feel a bit lost. They feel like, look, we can go to the U.S. and it's, some of them are still aiming to go to the U.S. if they're in stuff like IC design, which is currently most competitive in America, but our career in the U.S. at U.S. firms as, as Chinese, there's going to be a glass ceiling on what we can do and what we can achieve. We don't necessarily want to go back to China because we don't believe that China is necessarily as advanced in the field or in the sector in what we're doing. So they end up basically looking to Singapore. That will, I think, benefit Singapore and is benefiting Singapore, both for corporations. And I think increasingly it will benefit Singapore for startups. And you're, you are seeing very good start, like some very good budding projects that are being led by younger trainees, PhD students. But that is impacting this as well. There isn't for any sector, whether it's semiconductor or the like, there's no drastic black and white. China is not written off. Whether it's semiconductor, whether it's other sectors, for other sectors, while the pandemic is pushing companies like Siemens to want to diversify, China still remains the place where they want to increase their operations or they want to still have operations. It's hard to say. You're seeing a big move in Japan as well, which is moving more which is putting billions, it's an own industry and it's in, in its own champion. So it's hard to see just yet what's going to happen. We're seeing some moves that are impacting, but there's no black and white answer just yet. And the big current that people in semiconductor industry keep raising to me is we don't know what's coming next from the U.S., whether they will be more sanctions, whether companies that are still doing business with China that are getting, so you can get permission if you want to sell equipment or chips the exemptions from U.S. government, whether that's going to stop, which was happening for some Malaysian companies. So there's a lot of questions and a lot of uh, concerns on what the future of the semiconductor industry is going to look like. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, it's really that mixed bag, I think, is the best word for that. Because on the one hand, you have all these, I guess, that with nationalism comes both a lot of more restriction, a lot more barriers combined with the uncertainty of the current global market. But at the same time, because of this nationalism as well, you have a lot of infrastructure building, a lot of spending going into the sector, promoting a lot of like more local champions, so to speak, which actually would also grow the industry in a way, right? So it's, yeah, I don't know what else to call it, but it makes back. Really interesting to follow. And I think, yeah, the more stories to write. Looking forward to seeing what you're going to cover in this sector in particular. Our conversation with Fanny continues in next week's episode where we talk about AI regulation in Southeast Asia, advice for founders on engaging with media, among other topics. Follow us or subscribe wherever you're watching or listening to this call so you get notified on the next one and I'll catch you there.